0: Okay, good morning, everyone. We'll jump back into Chemnitz in Caridian. We're looking at baptism. And so we'll be on page uh, 114, 115, somewhere in there. After the invocation prayer, I'll try to remember specifically where we left off. If you can help me out, that'd be great. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven Okay, so last week we had spent some time talking about the benefits of baptism and how baptism is given to us by God for the sake of our comfort. Now, did we leave off around question 235, but what if one who is baptized rejects repentance and loses faith? Does that ring a bell? Okay, let's pick up there. If it starts to get really familiar, we can always jump ahead. So in answer to this question... Or even to reframe the question, what if one who is baptized rejects repentance and loses faith? Does baptism, as, as we saw the scriptures teach, explicitly in two places, but even more than that, that baptism saves, does it save apart from faith? Of course, the answer is going to be no. No. Let's get Chemnitz's response to this question. The salutary fruits of baptism of which we have spoken are apprehended, retained, and preserved by faith. Therefore, where there is no repentance and no good, but only evil fruits follow, there certainly is no true and saving faith, as was pointed out above, Likewise, he that either does not seek or does not retain the grace of God in Christ, but spurns and rejects it, he does not have true faith. And those such having been baptized, yet they are under this sentence of divine judgment, he that does not believe shall be condemned. So in these deceptively simple lines that our Lord speaks in Mark 1616, whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. He connects baptism and faith with the path of salvation. But what condemns, interestingly, isn't a lack of baptism, but rather a lack of faith. Whoever does not believe, even more properly speaking, a rejection, whoever does not believe will be condemned. Okay, so not an absence of baptism, but an absence of faith. And as you fetch that out, that's wonderful theology. You can see our Lord doesn't pit baptism and faith against each other. They're one and the same. If you believe, you're going to be baptized. If you're baptized, you're going to believe. Why would there be any artificial distinction or barrier put between the two? Faith and baptism always go together. Um, But ultimately, the only thing that condemns is unbelief. Okay, shall we go on? 2.36, if then someone falls away from the covenant of baptism and later is converted anew, is there no longer any comfort left for him on the basis of baptism? Okay, so you have a baptized person. They fall away, apostatize, and then they return of what use is their baptism? Or is there any comfort remaining in that baptism? Answer. The papists teach... Now, this is um, obviously the Roman Catholics, and this is a term specifically... I, I like this term because it's those who believe what the papacy teaches. And it's a great distinction because it means those within the Roman Catholic Church who believe what the Bible teaches are orthodox on these matters. But if you follow the Pope on these matters, you're going to be deceived. So a papist is... I know it sounds pejorative and nasty and it can be used that way, but it's actually a really important distinction and a fairly evangelical distinction as well. A kindly distinction, I mean. Okay, so the papists teach that the Ark of Baptism is so dashed to pieces and completely destroyed by sin against conscience that it cannot be repaired. And therefore, those who repent are not to return to the covenant of baptism, but are to seize a second plank, namely of repentance and our works, by which we might escape the depth of perdition. Kind of a, not to over-dramatize the image, but it's like in Unbelief, you're drowning in the sea and you're about to go down finally, and along comes the ark, the boat of the Holy Christian Church, and they pull you up and in, and there you are, dry and safe. But the second you sin, or especially a conscious sin, it's like driving that ark right into the rocks, it shatters, and you're back where you started. In the waters, but now there's all this flotsam and jetsam. There's all this shipwreck around, so you can grab a hold of a plank and still be saved uh, by doing works of penance. And as, as you know, in the papistic system, this is the introduction to the whole credit debit theology. So in baptism, all your debits, all the um, your debts, the amount you're in the red, is washed away, and you start with a clean slate. But as soon as you start sinning, You start going into the red again. You can't go back to that which cleaned your slate. You can't go back to the ark, the boat that you shattered against the rocks. So goes the papistic thinking. That now as you begin to go into debt of sin, into the red, you need to somehow, through your own good works, merit... Or by purchasing the merits of the saint, get yourself back into the black. So that's the papistic system, and you can see how that works here. And of course the Lutherans are going to reject this. The scriptures don't teach this. The church fathers don't teach this. There's one uh, church father who's uh, generally, I mean, he's, he's always worth paying attention to, but he's not always sound. And there's one church father who taught this explicitly. He's even mentioned in the Book of Concord as being an error on this point, And that's St. Jerome. St. Mm-hmm. Jerome was one who certainly popularized uh, this idea of shipwrecking baptism. And then it's up to you and to your good works to save you. So just picking back up at the last full sentence, on the to- or the first full sentence on the top of 115... But God forbid that our unbelief make the faith of God of no effect. And God does not want the basis of grace entered with us by baptism to consist in this, that if we break faith, he also will not keep faith, even if we repent and return to it. So Chemnitz here playing with this idea of the baptismal covenant, That really comes from a view, because you don't find that language in the New Testament itself attached, except where Paul will talk about in Colossians as baptism being a circumcision made without hands. So circumcision was very clearly an entrance into the covenant, the old covenant with God's people. Entrance into the new covenant by parallel is baptism. This circumcision made without hands. This circumcision, not of the foreskin of a body part, but of the old Adam, the flesh. Uh, that is what's being cut off through the surgical knife of holy baptism. Okay, so that's where this language of covenant comes um, from. And then it's we have to understand that if we're going to understand his rhetoric, God has established this covenant. If we break that covenant, if we apostatize, does God in turn break the covenant and say, fine, no baptism for you ever. The baptism that I gave you is now null and void. He does not. God keeps faith. God keeps his half of the bargain so that even if we apostatize and turn away and we don't keep faith and we break our end of the bargain, if we return to it, he is still faithful and steadfast and his half of the covenant, he's not going to go back on that. That's the logic of Chemnet's statements here. Okay, so picking back up so I can just finish his answer and then we can open it up for comments. Um, it looks like about the sixth line down from the top of 115. But as the ancients have well said, baptism is rather the door by which we are admitted and received to fellowship and participation in the merits of Christ, so that we might continue therein, or if we fall therefrom, that we might have access and a way back to that covenant of grace in true repentance, through faith, continually, while it is still today. And Jeremiah describes in very comforting words in all of Jeremiah 3 how much God commends his grace to us in this very thing. Okay, so this gives us opportunity then to see what is in contrast with the errors of American evangelicalism. Where on the one hand they pit baptism against the cross, if the cross saves baptism can't or on the other hand if faith saves baptism can't we now see clearly that what christ wins on the cross is given to us in baptism and that is received by faith so rather than a sort of horizontal the cross not baptism or faith not baptism that kind of error a more vertical analogy where god what christ does in Uh, on account of uh, God sending him on the cross, what he won on the cross is distributed to us through baptism, and that is received by faith. And so as you focus on the cross, you can say, yes, there alone is our salvation. As you focus on baptism, you can say, yes, there alone is our salvation. And as you focus on faith, you can say, yes, there alone is our salvation. If any of those differing parts of the chain is missing, there's no salvation. Um, that's the way in which they save. So, an analogy is like, if you've got, you've got a bunch of water miles away, it does you no good unless there's some sort of infrastructure, pipe, aqueduct, whatever the case may be, to get you that water. And that's a kind of helpful way of wrapping your mind around the analogy that Christ then has one salvation and forgiveness for us that comes to you via the pipe or aqueduct the means of holy baptism that's how it comes to you personally and, and individually so that you can profit from that water you can profit from that reservoir of life that is ours in Christ's death okay let's pause there see if you have any thoughts There's one. Oh, no microphone today. Oh, there it is. Um, so the papists say um, it's repentance in our works. Is how you return? Or uh-huh. you don't return? I don't <laughs> Wait, could you, say one, could you say it a little louder? Oh, um, that The papists say it's repentance in our works. That must be done. Mm-hmm. Um, but to return to our baptism... In Chemnitz, it's just repentance, or it's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you would say, I mean, clearly Lutherans would hold that you bear fruits worthy of repentance, but that's a separate aspect. So analogous is, and I know we used this last week too, it's great, it's apropos, that's the prodigal son. When he returns, he loses all the benefits of sonship, squanders them, has them no longer. But when he returns, he returns as a son. That's how the father receives him. And that's a perfect analogy for walking away from your baptism, walking away from your sonship, squandering it, squandering your inheritance, acting as though you were not a son, returning as though you were not a son, but received as a son by the heavenly father. Mm mm-hmm. So the Roman Catholic system is more complicated than the American evangelical system. It too is a kind of linearly functioning system because baptism will wash away your sins from that moment backward, but it does nothing for you forward should you fall back into sin again. And then there's this distinction made in Roman Catholicism, and and of course in Lutheranism too, albeit it just functions in a very different way between mortal and venial sins. And venial sins are sins that, um, uh, mortal and venial sins are sins that bear temporal and eternal consequence. Christ's taken away the eternal consequence so what's the temporal consequence and how do you mitigate that temporal consequence through acts of penance so it's a more complicated system in the roman catholic system um, you you go to confession in order to be uh, reconciled that is to say uh, in particular your mortal sins removed so that you can go to communion because Holy Communion, properly speaking in that system, is for your venial sins. You don't go to Holy Communion with mortal sin in the way. You need to first go to penance, get the mortal sin out of the way. Then you can go to communion and get the venial sin out of the way. But even then, it's, uh, it's not the kind of forgiveness that's just without strings, full and free, the way we enjoy. in the Evangelical, the Gospel-centered Lutheran Church... Um, because there's always these strings of penance and this virtue of never being sure that you've satisfied it and this, again, papistic virtue, I should probably be using air quotes, but of not being sure of one's salvation. Whereas in the scriptures, in the writings of the majority of Orthodox Church fathers, it's just much more clean and much more comforting than that. That baptism is a perpetual reality. It's like entering into marriage. You were married, but you are married. It's entering into baptism as you were baptized, but you are baptized. And that sonship of the Heavenly Father and the benefits of that sonship are perpetually yours. It's perpetual forgiveness of sins. It's perpetual renewal of the Holy Spirit. These Baptism is an ongoing, durative action of God to man. And then we find, uh, so we find grace and forgiveness of sins there. We find grace and forgiveness of sins in a different form and with different strengths in confession absolution. We find the forgiveness of sins in a different form and with different strengths in the sacrament of the altar. But we don't create this linear system, this whole economy, as it were, where we're constantly falling into the red and trying to get back into the black. So in short, it's, it's good to be Lutheran. <laughs> Not only because it's biblical, but also because it's simple and comforting relative to the errors of, uh, that the Pope and his magisterium have introduced um, over the centuries. Okay, sh- yes sir, I see a hand over here. How does uh, an unborn baby end up with sin? So the teaching there in um, and I, this is uh, this is I believe the teaching of the scriptures. It is certainly also the teaching of the Western Church. The Eastern Orthodox disagree with us on this point, but other than that, you find it pretty universal, and that is inherited sin. So you can think about it like this, what's the offspring of a duck? Nothing but a duck, ducks don't magically produce anything other than a duck. What's the offspring of a sinner? A sinner, sinners don't produce anything but sinners. And so it's not so much of an individualistic view that we're accustomed to here in the late west either, It's viewing humanity, you you would view each one of us as individuals, as just branches, as it were, of an entire tree. So if the root is bad, the rest of the tree is bad. And because we're members of that family tree, we're corrupted by that sin. We're all barren and fruitless. We're that fig tree that doesn't have any fruit. So that's the idea. And of course, you could just trace that to a very simple statement of our Lord Jesus. Remember that one to Nicodemus where he says, you have to be born again or you can't see or you can't enter. And then here's the clarifying statement. That which is of the flesh is flesh. That which is of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel to you that I say you must be born again, be born of water and the spirit. Okay, so that's the, I I mean, I fully affirm, I believe that that's the Bible's teaching. I fully affirm that. Now, what does that mean if an infant dies before baptism or before coming to the faith? Um, What it means to me is that's above my pay grade and I commend that into God's hands. It's his business. I don't see the Bible answering that. I see the Bible speaking in generalities, that the church is taken and run with. So one generality is, well, apart from faith, all are condemned. That's a true statement. It's a general statement. Does that necessarily apply uh, to all infants? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. The Bible doesn't give us a clear answer, and that's why I say it's above my pay grade. The Lord hasn't revealed this in plain old English to me, and so um, I commend that into his hands. Uh, indication indication that there could be salvation there. Um, it gets into a nuanced argument, but even something like pointing to the incarnation of Jesus in the womb shows that he's the Savior, not just for the born, not just for the mature, but um, even for those in the womb. Um, you have, of course, and... This, Again, the argument gets a little complicated, but you have David's son with Bathsheba, who before he is circumcised, uh, dies, and David just flat out asserts, I'll see him again. So um, there is, uh, now, is that a believer? As the word worked through faith? I mean, all, these are all complicating arguments, um, but All that to say that once you take the whole of the biblical data, the safest answer is to commend it into God's hands and say, we'll see, he'll do what's right, and we'll see what right is. Anything further, or is that okay? Yep. Okay, there's one up front here. Um, What about John the Baptist leaping in the womb? Sure. Why is that? Yeah, there's an example of faith in the womb. Yeah, completely, completely possible with God. And probably much more normal than we think. More questions there than answers, more, more mystery. Um, but the whole nature of the Christian faith, the revelation of the heart of God in Christ Jesus, is that we understand that he's good. We understand that He's gracious. He's more good than we are. He's more gracious than we are. I can guarantee you one thing, that when all the dust is settled on the cosmos, there's not going to be any suspicion in your mind that God is somehow evil or wicked or begrudging or not merciful or that He didn't do something quite right. There's not going to be a single question like that in your mind. We're all going to look at it. Our minds, our hearts, our consciences are all going to be completely at rest in what He's done. Um, it'll be manifestly revealed what the rationale is and how he was uh went above and beyond and was just completely and absurdly gracious in his salvation of men so yeah the concrete details remain to be seen so should baptism be uh repeated that's the next question obviously not Question 237 is baptism then to be repeated as often as we fall by no means for the covenant that God made with us in baptism is an everlasting covenant and baptism is a seal that testifies that God will continually keep the covenant of grace once made with us whenever and as often as we return to it. It is therefore not necessary to repeat baptism as often as we are converted or, uh, excuse me, converted after a fall. As also in the Old Testament, (laughs) those who fell did not repeat circumcision. Goodness gracious. At conversion, but returned in earnest repentance through true faith to the covenant of grace that God had made with them in circumcision. Thus, Paul did not re-baptize the Corinthians and Galatians who were again converted to God after a fall, but directed them to the covenant and comfort of baptism once received. And some references given there, you remember um, the Galatians uh, influenced by the Judaizing teachers had fallen under the error that in order to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus and be circumcised. And Paul says, those of you who hold this have fallen from grace. So Paul doesn't say then, since you've fallen from grace, you need to be baptized again. Or you can think of the man in 1 Corinthians who's engaged in the heinous sexual sin, and Paul admonishes the Corinthians and tells them that he must be excommunicated when that man comes in repentance back to the church, Paul says, bring him back in, reinstate and restore him, but he doesn't ever say, rebaptize him. So, even in those very concrete examples, we see this principle borne out. And Kenmitz brings that to bear for us here. Okay, 238, does baptism, because of the comfort regarding forgiveness of sins and salvation, also have more effects and benefits. And so the chief benefit and comfort of baptism is that of which we have spoken so far. But Paul mentions, in addition, also another effect of baptism. For he says, Titus 3.5, baptism is a washing first of regeneration, namely that we who by nature were children of wrath are reborn of water and the Spirit, So that for Christ's sake we might be children of God. Second, he says that it is a washing of renewing of the Holy Spirit. Okay, in what then does this renewal consist? Paul indeed briefly but thoroughly covers and describes this whole process of renewal, uh, Romans 6. Did we read Romans 6? Let's let's look at Romans six then. Why not? If, especially if we can't remember. Romans six is great. <clears throat> so what we're looking at here with chemnitz is in particular these two aspects of baptism kind of justifying or salvific aspect but then also a renewing being made new aspect and those are two sides of the same coin in this case the coin being baptism so you don't have one without the other mm-hmm. nor do you have the coin Paul's teaching on baptism without both so Romans six one. <clears throat> What shall we say then are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? So already in his rhetoric, though he hasn't got there explicitly, when did you die to sin? In baptism. In baptism you were put to death and died to sin. And that's the first part. So baptism is actually has a destructive element to it. We always think of baptism as just being purely nice and wonderful and positive, but baptism also has a destructive element to it. And you can even think of this in the the prototypes of baptism. Remember, in the flood, it's destructive for the impenitent and wicked mass of humanity, even though it's salvific for Noah and seven others. So there's a destructive element and an edifying element. And then the same would be true at the Red Sea crossing, where Pharaoh and his host are destroyed, while Moses and Israel are saved. Okay, so in baptism, sin is destroyed, uh, and then positively we're set forth on a different plan. Okay, so verse 3 then. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might... Now, notice what he doesn't say. We too might be raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. That's not what he says. He's not ready to make that full parallel yet. It'll come. But that's not his point here, and it's very much worth observing. So once more, verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Christ has been fully raised on the third day. So he was buried. We were buried with him. He was fully raised. Have we yet been fully raised from the dead? No. But in part we have, namely that we might walk in newness of life. That is to say the spiritual has already been raised from the dead. The spiritual is already new. The spiritual is already one with Christ. But <clears throat> our bodies yet need to be raised from the dead and be made new and joined with uh, the soul effectively. Okay, so again, I don't mean to overcomplicate things. If you just look at the words themselves, they're more than sufficient. Why were we buried with Jesus in baptism so that just as Christ is raised? we too might walk in newness of life. Okay, five. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So a spiritual resurrection has already taken place. The fullness of the bodily resurrection is yet to come. Verse six. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So not only in baptism were you buried with him, but you were crucified with him. You died with him. And that was the sinful you being brought to nothing. And again, remember the whole rhetorical point. Should we go on sinning? It's impossible. We've already died to it. You can't live to something you've already died to. And that's what's happened in baptism, is with Jesus we've been crucified. We've died and we've been buried. So once more with six, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Um, remember remember the Exodus. That when Pharaoh and the host are drowned in the, are drowned in the Red sea that 's the end of their slavery that 's the end of the slavery of the Israelites. Why, why were Pharaoh and his host coming back to have a tea party or hang out, maybe have lunch? Oh, hey, you forgot something. We just wanted to bring it to you. No, they were going to capture them and bring them back into bondage. So when God, through the water, destroys Pharaoh and his host he 's putting away the slavery of the Israelites once and for all. So that's how then Paul says, we're no longer slaves to sin. Um, and where, where is sin going to lead us, as it were? It's going to lead us right into death. So he's saying, look, I've already destroyed sin. I've already destroyed death. How can you pursue, how can you pursue sin when it's already been destroyed? That's crazy. How, how could you go back into slavery when God set you free? Okay, that's the rhetoric behind the end of verse 6. we'd know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And of course, you've died in baptism. That's the point. So you've been set free from sin. Now, that doesn't mean that you no longer sin. (laughs) That's self-evident from the rest of the epistle, or even from other scripture verses. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's rather that you've been set free from sin as your Pharaoh. When sin snaps its fingers and says, do this, you can say no. You should say no. <laughs> when, when sin snaps its fingers and says, time for payday and my pay is death, the wages that sin doles out our death, then you don't have to collect that payday. That's not your boss. Christ is your boss. That's the rhetoric that's being used here. And I know Satan will kind of twist this in our minds, but if you, if you just sort of like, okay, great, Satan, you want to go that way, let's go all the way with it, then is Paul here teaching sinlessness? No. Of course, because this is Romans 6, and what comes next? Romans 7 (laughs) where he says the good that I want to do I do not the evil that I don't want to do that I keep on doing who will save me from this body of death thanks be to God through Christ Jesus my Lord Paul not teaching us sinlessness here but Paul teaching how we have been set free from sin is no longer our Lord Jesus is our Lord so we don't pursue sin's desires we pursue Jesus desires if we fall into sin who's there to undo that work Forgive that work. Blot out and erase that work. Christ. He's our Lord and Master, not sin. That's really the rhetorical punch of these verses. Verse 8 then. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died... He died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So so you must also reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word reckon or consider yourselves is a loaded word in Romans, especially in chapters four and five, because God reckons or considers Abraham to be righteous on account of faith. So is Abraham righteous? No, he's a sinner. Why does God reckon or consider him to be righteous? Because Abraham believes. God desires faith, not moral perfection. And where faith exists, he credits that faith with full and complete righteousness, blotting out all sins. Abraham is not sinless, but God considers him or reckons him to be so. That's a forensic or juridical act. It's like if OJ really happened to be guilty and the jury said he was innocent, that's a forensic juridical act for all legal intents and purposes. He's innocent. Irrespective of the facts. And that gives us a window into how Abraham is a sinner, we are sinners, but God reckons or considers us righteous for the sake of Christ on account of faith. Now, what does that show us then, that that teaching of Paul from Romans 4 and 5, when we get here to 6, so you must also reckon yourselves. Why? Because when you look at yourself, you're going to see all kinds of sin fact as you progress along you're going to see your sin even more deeply for what it is and it's going to bring you to tears because you're going to think on the meaning of that sin so then what is paul saying in verse 11 nonetheless you must also reckon consider yourselves forensic juridical act to be dead to sin and alive to god in christ jesus did christ die Bearing the sins of the world? Yes, he did. Were my sins there? Yes, they were. When I was baptized into him, I was put to death with him. I was there on the cross, nailed to the cross with him. I was taken off and carried and laid into his tomb with him. Should I go on sinning and have sin as my Lord? Oh, that's a preposterous idea. I've died with Christ. He died to sin once and for all, and with him so have I. But now that he's risen, the life he lives, he lives to God. Neither sin nor death have any dominion over him. And since I am now raised with him, neither sin nor death have any dominion over me. But rather I count myself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see what Paul's doing here? I mean, it's to some degree heady stuff, but simple enough when you you cut through it all. Okay, then what is the admonition? Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. So this is like the idea of reigning sins, or we even sometimes call them mortal sins. This is when you've given yourself over to something in complete impenitence. And um, you don't repent of it. You don't return to God. Maybe you just keep trying to cover your tracks or whatever the case is, but you don't confess it as sin. So that's what happens if you let sin reign in your mortal body. Paul says flat out, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. To make you obey its passions, its uh, epithumias, its desires. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Again, look how sin is kind of personified. As if you'd like go to Pharaoh... You'd go to sin sitting on its throne. You'd kind of kneel and say, how can I serve you today? Okay, don't present your members uh, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. Go rather to the throne of God. Present yourself there as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members present these to God as instruments for righteousness. I mean this is why we wake up every morning, we make the sign of the cross and we say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in remembrance of our baptism, because this day, insofar as God empowers me, is going to be a day that I live for God, not for sin. It's going to be a day that I present my members and all that I mean, my mind, my reason, everything. My my hands, my feet. I'm going to use my entire self as instruments for righteousness, not for sin. And nobody makes it through a day with, you know, with a 100%. Okay? But that's beside the point. The question is, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? Should we pursue sin and live for sin, knowing that God covers it all? No. pursue righteousness, pursue what God would have us do, knowing that whatever we lack, He will provide and cover. Okay, so verse 14 then, For sin will have no dominion lordship over you since you are not under the law but under grace you you were once it's the pauline way of thinking you were once dead in your trespasses the law ruled over you declaring you to be dead sin was your boss now god is your boss You're no longer dead in your trespasses, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And the law doesn't stand over you condemning you. Rather, you are blanketed by God's grace in Christ. Two different paradigms, two different worlds, two different lordships, an old life under which you served sin and a new life in which you serve Christ. Okay, well, his argument continues, but that probably does enough for us to get the lay of the land in terms of what chemnitz is count, uh, is <clears throat> teaching us here in questions uh, two thirty eight and two thirty nine so again, what benefits does baptism give two thirty eight it 's a washing of regeneration it 's this brand new creation it 's this transition from sin and death to Christ and life. And so, in that sense, it's got a justification aspect, a salvific aspect. The second part of that is renewal. And this on the base, of course, of Titus 3. But it's that renewal, or as Paul says in Romans 6, that we walk in newness of life. So, picking back up with 2.39, his answer, Paul indeed briefly but thoroughly covers and describes this whole process of renewal in Romans 6.4 and following. Where he says, first, that we being planted by baptism in the death of Christ are also buried with him into death namely that the power and efficacy of death of the death of Christ not only forgives us sins but also begins to crucify mortify and bury sin in the flesh in the baptized by the holy spirit that it should not reign in our body and we should not obey its lusts or desires but that the body of sin might be destroyed second he says i mean this is also a very positive view of death because as you're battling your flesh every day you're waking up and there it is and when the day comes for you to die or when you see death approaching or when you see death imminent it's just the death of your flesh it's just the death of your enemy it's a very positive view. it's like finally i'm going to be free from you finally you're going to get what's coming and it's a very, very positive, at least it gives us a, a platform on which we can stand and see a very positive aspect of death. That the day of our death is the day of the completion of our sanctification. And the only thing that's dying is the old man with, that we've been battling our whole lives anyway. Okay, second, very bottom of 115 Second, he says that through baptism, this Paul, he says that through baptism, we are also made partakers of the resurrection of Christ, namely that through it, the Holy Spirit renews the mind that we put on the new man who is created according to God in righteousness and holiness of truth. All right, let's pause there. I think this should make sense to you, especially if you've, uh, if you've really understood the distinction between justification and sanctification. Two different sides of the same coin. You don't have one without the other. And then you just realize baptism's role in, as a means of grace, establishing justification and sanctification. Good to go on? Okay. Okay two hundred forty, how are exhortations to newness of life to be drawn from baptism? By the example of Paul, Romans six, three through four and six, eleven through twelve, basically the whole section we just read, for just as God made with us a covenant of grace and a good conscience in baptism, So we also, on the other hand, promised him that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. So this is talking about the other half of the covenantal reality, that what is our part to play? And just put it even more clearly, we weren't sons, and in baptism we became sons. If you're a son, you have all the blessings and benefits of sonship, but you also have the identity as a son and the responsibilities of a son, and they're inescapable, they're unavoidable. Okay, so that's really what he's getting at. Um, so what was our part in baptism? That as his sons, we promise him that we will die to sin and live to righteousness. For this reason, the renunciation in the act of baptism was given this form of question and answer. Do you renounce the devil? Remember this? Answer, I renounce, etc. Do you renounce all his works, all his ways, etc.? You remember from our right... So, in that renunciation, you're pledging to be for God and against the devil. The only alternative is to be for the devil and against God. It's just that simple. Kenneth continues, It is therefore a horrible sin, impudently to violate that covenant. For thus we hinder and destroy the work of the Holy Spirit, who works renewal in us. But all believers can, in fact, should, confidently implore and entreat the Holy Spirit by a certain rite of baptism, as it were, to mortify the works of the flesh in them and cleanse and renew their hearts more and more. This is what the catechism is getting at when it talks about, it asks the question, what does such baptism with water indicate? That is to say, the actual act of going under the waters in baptism and coming up out of the waters, what, what is the symbolism in that? And it's very clear that baptism as, as a durative, continuous reality in which we live, just like marriage is. You know, there's a day you were married, but now you're in the married life. There was a day you were baptized, but now you're in the baptismal life. That means that every day is a constant reenactment of that baptism. Every day is a continual drowning of the old Adam and rising of the new man. Now, that's an ugly process by our vantage point, and there's many days where it seems like the the flesh gets the upper hand, but indeed it only seems like that, because if in faith you're repentant and you receive God's mercy, that's the final victory. That's where your victory is yours by faith, even if the old man is, as Paul describes, hindering you all too often from the good you want to do, and catalyzing you into all kinds of sins that you don't want to do nonetheless the victory is yours in christ who saves you from this body of death okay so that's then chemnitz reflecting on the reality that baptism is a drowning and a bringing forth of the new and that means our daily lives is a drowning and bringing forth of the new Question 241. Are the effects and benefits of baptism immediately complete and finished in the baptized? I wish. Wouldn't that be amazing? Just Baptized and that's it? Regeneration indeed, that is adoption and the forgiveness of sins, is complete and finished in believers immediately after baptism. And yet it nevertheless extends through the whole life of a man. So those are the justification or salvific aspects of baptism. Here's the sanctification side of baptism. But renewal is indeed begun in baptism and grows daily. I thought Lutherans today were telling us that we can't progress in sanctification. that There is no progress in the spiritual life. They are telling us that, and that's because they are not Lutheran anymore on this point. <laughs> they, they know neither the Confessions, nor Luther, nor Chemnitz, the Incaridian that all Lutheran pastors of the time were expected to know and teach. Uh, I'm sorry, they've, they've lost their birthright on that point. They need to repent and return uh, to what our scriptures and our tradition teach. Renewal is indeed begun in baptism and grows daily but is finally completed in the life to come. For in this present life, renewal is still imperfect, and what now, Chemnitz? Should grow and increase from day to day. With a whole bunch of uh, scripture, scriptures there. Listen, if you want to go looking up those, because you're not quite convinced it's the teaching of the scripture, I'm happy to do that with you all. Um, but but any any one of these would work. Um, maybe just let me let me see if I can find First Peter two one through two. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and and all slander. Why does he say put it away? Because it's there <laughs> in the baptized. If it, again, if it wasn't a problem, Paul wouldn't be telling us to address it. So, or, sorry, here, Peter. Put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slatter, slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that may, by it you may grow up to salvation. Do we expect our infants to remain infants forever? No, we expect them to drink milk and grow up into solid food and grow into full, mature adults. I'm, I'm working with my kiddos. We're somewhere between infancy and independence. <laughs> but the goal, sure as can be, is independence. And such an independence that they can be a help to others. Okay, so that is precisely the analogy that the Holy Spirit uses through the Apostle Peter for our spiritual growth. That like newborn infants as they long for their mother's milk, we would long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. You may mature, grow on your way into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. All right, well, that one's sufficient alone. I mean, if that's all we had, that's enough. Of course, there's other references here given by Chemnitz that... um, and I think that this gets you know mistaken. It's like I, all the objections to this don't undo what Peter has written. I mean, the objections are are fine. We can entertain those. The objections are that you know one day maybe you're worse than the day before, okay. Or you have some great fall or some horrible year or life circumstances or crosses and afflictions that you can't handle. And, um, you, you know, so as a Christian, you have some moral fall or failing or something. That's no different than like being a little kid and getting sick and you can't eat for a few days. So you lose some weight. Right. You're less healthy. That, that's what, ha- it's a setback on your path to mat- maturation. Maybe many such setbacks on your path to maturation. But as sure as you can't stop a baby from growing into an adult, but want to nurture that, same with the Christian. So you can break, a little kid can break an arm. Now you can't use your arm. Does that mean you give up on the project? Huh? Well, broke his arm. Guess he'll never be an adult. Uh, it's just stupid. And it, this is the way that, you know, modern Lutherans have argued now I, for, um, for decades. And it's just stupid. Stupid. You break an arm, you wait till the arm heals. You get sick and you can't eat, and so you're, you're weak for a time and you lose weight for a time. You ride that out and then you eat again and you get strong again and you grow up into an adult. So... Um, All of these objections, we can acknowledge that they're there, that look, some days are better than others, and some years are better than others, and whew, that was a rough decade. But just as surely as a little child is to grow up into maturity, so also are we Christians, newly baptized little children, to grow up into maturity. That's the simple teaching of the Scriptures. I think Ephesians, yeah, Ephesians 4 is listed here too, where, where just Paul's absolutely explicit that the maturation that's taking place is a conformity into the image of Jesus, the one true man, the one truly mature and complete and finished adult. Um, as, as I mentioned before, uh, the words, I, uh, it is finished, aren't just simply, okay, the atonement is complete. There's probably like 15 valid correlates to the words, it is finished, not least of which... In that final moment, Christ shows himself to be the perfectly mature, the perfectly complete man. The man after the image of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, the perfect and complete man. Which then puts a cruciform pattern to our whole life. That we would grow up in, in the faith and mature in such a way that even at our death we would be faithful. Even if God were to forsake us, we would remain faithful to him. Even if men were to hate us, we would remain loving toward them. That's the goal of the maturation. It's right in the cruciform image of Christ. So, again, I I don't need to do any more lifting here. If you're really interested, you can go read Ephesians on this point and see that Paul and Peter are in perfect agreement um, that with Chemnitz, that renewal is indeed begun in baptism and grows daily. And we, um, though renewal is still imperfect, it should nonetheless grow and increase from day to day. I don't know how that's become a controversial point, but it's uh, thoroughly answered in the scriptures, the confessions, Chemnitz, Luther, all the friends. And you should uh, rest easy in it. Okay, any thoughts, any questions? Well, we've got one minute or two minutes left let's press on <laughs> 242 are infants to be baptized yes for baptism of infants was always observed in the christian church from the time of the apostles and was defended and approved against heretics on the basis of the word of god as the very ancient writers irenaeus cyprian Origen, ambrose augustine and chrysostom testify we'll go into next week um And so this will kind of wet your taste buds, and we'll look at the scriptural foundation for the baptism of children, and why it is a necessity theologically, but even according to the institution of Christ, when he institutes baptism, as a baptism of uh, discipleship for all nations. Okay, the Lord be with you.